1: I'm Vershawn Young, host of New Books in African-American Studies, the interview series where writers and authors of African-American life, culture, arts, and sciences discuss their new books. Today, I'm speaking with Coretha Mitchell about her provocative new study of African-American lynching plays. The title, Living with Lynching, African-American Lynching. Hello, I'm Vershawn Young, Host of New Books in African American Studies, the interview series where writers and authors of African American life, culture, arts, and sciences discuss their new books. Today, I'm speaking with Coretha Mitchell about her provocative new study of African American lynching plays. The title, Living with Lynching, African American Lynching Plays, Performance and Citizenship, 1890-1930. to Mitchell's book is published by the University of Illinois Press, 2012. The publishers describe Mitchell's book as the first full-length critical study of lynching plays in American culture. I'm sure you'll enjoy what Caritha has to say about her study. Listen in.
0: Hello, Caritha.
2: Hi, Bashan.
0: Today, we're speaking with Caritha Mitchell, who is an associate professor of English at The Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio, and she is the author of a provocative new book entitled Living with Lynching, African-American Lynching Plays, Performance and Citizenship 1890-1930. through Karetha's book is the first full-length study of African-American lynching plays, and she is adding to the discourse on lynching. We are happy to have Karetha on the show today. Karetha, can you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself?
2: Sure, and I'm really delighted to be on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Um, well, I was born and raised in Sugarland, Texas, Texas, um, which is not far from Houston, Texas. Um, and I ended up going to undergrad at Ohio Wesleyan University, which is in Delaware, Ohio, not far from where I'm currently now a professor in Columbus, Ohio. Um, so that's actually kind of a strange uh outcome. But I went to graduate school at the University of Maryland College Park. So that's where I did my master's and PhD in the English department specializing in African American literature. So I've had kind of this move from, you know, being born and raised in the south or southwest of Texas, um as many people would say kind of Texas is its own <laughs> its own nation in a way. Um so starting out in Texas and then going to Ohio for undergrad and then near Washington D.C. for graduate school and now back here in uh Columbus, Ohio. So it's been an interesting kind of uh journey even geographically.
0: How long have you been at the Ohio State University?
2: Uh, this is year seven. Uh so I got tenure last year.
0: Congratulations.
2: Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, thank you. Yeah, so uh I haven't been here I I've been here long enough to certainly feel kind of settled in, um, but it's 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 <clears throat> been interesting.
0: Now, you mentioned in the uh, acknowledgments to your book that uh, Carla Peterson directed your master's thesis, but you don't tell what the title or subject matter of that is. What was it?
2: Actually, yes, it was also about the
0: lynching place.
2: So I've been with this project a very long time.
0: (laughs) So when you say in the acknowledgments that you have, or in the introduction that you have been living with this project for most of your adult adult life. That is true.
2: Yes, it is absolutely true. Um, And, you know, actually, I guess I should say a little bit about how I came to this project, then? Yes. Um, So when I was an undergrad at Ohio Wesleyan University, which is a small liberal arts school, um, in my latter years there, I lived in a small living unit called the Women's House. So instead of living in the dorm, I lived in the women's house. And the purpose of those small living units was that you would do um programming to raise awareness on certain issues. So we did programming raising awareness on women's issues, body image, you know, self-esteem, sexual harassment, rape survival, rape prevention, that kind of thing. And um while I was living in the women's house, I was usually the only black woman in the house. And this became interesting partly because the House of Black Culture had become co-ed for the first time um when I started living in the Women's House, so I could have chosen to live in the House of Black Culture, so the fact that I didn't uh raise certain questions for people. So I was always kind of frustrated by this idea that that should raise a question. <laughs> so on the one hand, I was kind of annoyed um when it felt like there were certain times when black people wanted me to be black only, and other times living in the women's house, even though it was a great experience, when they would say to me, well, Carita, this is clearly a women's issue. Why are you bringing up race? So there was a way in which white women wanted me to just acknowledge that I was a woman. So that tension became really interesting to me just as a general question for lots of reasons, one of them including the fact that um, there was actually a rape case on my campus uh, during this time, and it was a date rape uh accusation of a black man and white woman who had been dating for a while and she accused him of rape and you know small living uh small liberal arts schools don't ever want to bring the police into the situation, so they were just doing this arbitration kind of thing. And the decision among the black students, because, of course, I was active in, you know, black student union kind of things. And so the decision was, okay, we're going to show solidarity with our brother by lining the hallway that goes into the arbitration room. We know we can't go into the arbitration room, but this way, when the administration, the plaintiff, and the defendant, you know, kind of in quotation marks, when they walk through to head into that room... They'll know that we support our brother. And I was like, no, I'm not going because um there's nothing for me to support. I don't know what happened. It's not as if date rape is impossible. So I'm not going to take a side. I'm not going to do that. So that, of course, raised some interesting questions <laughs> for people. Um And, you know, so it's kind of like these kinds of controversial issues are coming to a head for me. And then the other thing that was going on is that I was thinking to myself, okay, I know enough about U.S. history to know that when black men were fighting for the vote initially, their argument was, we're no longer slaves, so we should have our manhood rights. Um... Then once they get their voting rights in 1870, white women are saying, how are you going to give that ex slave the vote before your mother or sister or wife? And so it seemed to me that neither group was necessarily calling on their allegiance with black women while making these arguments. So I got really interested in what in the world were black women saying between like 1870 and 1920 when all of this is going on? I wanted to do more investigation into that. Then the other side of it, too, was that I, you know, living in the woman's house, wanted to know, okay, when were the other times in history that black and white women really did come together for political good? When were those times in history? So those were the kinds of questions that I went to graduate school having. Um, and so once I got to graduate school, it was Carla Peterson, as you mentioned, who knew that these were my interests. And so when the... Um, anthology of lynching plays came out, Strange Fruit, um, when that came out, she gave it to me because it is a collection of plays by black and white women on the topic of lynching. So it seemed to be one of those times where black and white women came together for political good. And that's the kind of framework that Judith Stevens and Kathy Perkins give you in the introduction of that anthology. So that's how I got started on this path, thinking that I was going to find this, you know, example of when black and white women came together. Of course, over time, I discovered that that was not the case and that, you know, black women had been begging white women to join them in the fight to end lynching for many decades before white women actually seemed to step up to the plate. Um, But by the time I realized those kinds of things, I was already kind of hooked on the plays.
0: So why why plays? Why uh drama? There seem to be other sorts of texts that uh deal with lynching. I mean you refer to uh Ida B. Wells' uh Red Record and, and and other um material as well. Why drama?
2: Yeah. Well, um, on a practical level, it started because of that wanting to see black and white women come together kind of thing and her giving me that anthology. But as time has gone on, it's really become um, a wonderful way to think differently about what lynching was. Because since I was dealing with drama, it made it easier for me to see the degree to which lynching itself was a theatrical production. Um, And so it it's... There are lots of scholars who have talked about that, right? Trudier Harris, Robin Wiegman, um, and others have talked about how theatrical lynching is, how much it's about ritual, how much it's about script. But you've never had on the other side of that, what is going on with the stage at the same time that this kind of theatrical production is going on? So in that way, I almost feel like it was fortunate that um, this started with me getting hooked on that anthology of lynching plays, because then it opened up a whole new world of thinking about, what does it mean to have something as theatrical as lynching going on when you're living in the midst of that? Theatrical work does important work in terms of identity formation, um, identity affirmation. So then to see that lynching was that kind of theatrical force um, and then to see what are African Americans doing to also use theatricality to affirm themselves became a really important question for me. Um, And so one of the things that I've found is that I think the plays, um, especially the plays that I'm looking at in this book, because very often they are one act, they are targeting a more intimate audience. And I would say that that's one of the biggest differences between this, this genre and other texts that deal with lynching. So you have famous things, um, Big Boy Leaves Home, Richard Wright. You've got that really amazing scene in autobiography of an ex colored man, you know, um, where finally when he encounters the lynching, the moment that he says, okay, enough of this, I'm, I'm becoming white, <laughs> I'm turning, <laughs> I'm not gonna play around with this anymore, it's time to be white indefinitely. <laughs> right. Um, and so they're powerful powerful uh, ways of dealing with lynching in other genres. But it seems to me that one of the things that happens with those other texts is that it is very much the violence that is the climax. The violence is the big turning point. And I think what these plays do for us is they underscore the degree to which the violence is only the beginning of the pain. Those who survive still have to figure a way of continuing to live and continuing to live and actually believing in your right to full citizenship. Um, And so it seems to me that because the plays aren't focused on the violence in the same way that some of the more famous texts um, that we turn to to understand lynching are, um, that's part of the insight that they're able to give us that those other texts don't.
0: In fact, you uh, say in the introduction and uh, theorize later on that uh, the plays uh, often do not even feature the violence themselves, that they... uh, uh, feature the home and the family relationship in order to make uh, 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 lynching, to bring attention to what lynching does to a community or to a family. Can you say more about that?
2: Absolutely. Um, it's it's almost amazing how little they feature physical violence. So you say lynching play, and people immediately say, how can you deal with that? And, you know, the violence of it. and You know, my response very often is that it's not physical violence. It's therefore even harder to deal with because you're... When a father is taken from that family forcibly and they are devastated financially, they're devastated emotionally, psychologically... So the violence is shown to be reverberating in these plays because it's not physical. The the physical pain is over, the, the body has deteriorated by now, but these plays are forcing you to look at well what happens to that child who um you know, adult child very often, who understands the of American society to deny their citizenship understands it so forcibly because they have literally lost their father. Um, So yeah, it seems to me that the plays are really invested in, if we're going to memorialize something, or not memorialize, the, the word I want here is record. If we're going to record something... Um, if we're going to leave evidence of something, um, we don't need to leave more evidence about the mutilated body. The the mob is taking care of that for us. We're surrounded by those images every time we open the newspaper, okay? So we don't need more record evidence of that. What we need evidence of is the fact that that um, victim who is portrayed in the photograph as an isolated brute, he wasn't isolated. He was a family man, who was targeted because he had some land that that white man wanted to take. That's the evidence that we need to preserve. Um, And it's very clear that that is what the playwrights are focused on. How can we preserve the truth about how unjustly under siege we are? And that's what the plays do. That's why they're not focused on that physical violence. So, you know, it isn't to say that the physical violence is somehow irrelevant, um, but, I do think that when you're dealing with trying to attract a mainstream audience or talk to an integrated audience, you're trying to convince them perhaps that lynching maybe isn't such a good idea. And, you know, that's why something like Autobiography of the Next Colored Man is important or Langston Hughes and the many ways that he's dealt with lynching and dealing with that kind of white father who uh, betrays a black son and that kind of thing. That's, That's what you do when you're trying to convince a mainstream audience that maybe this isn't so good for the country. But when you're focusing on black communities and trying to help them survive, Um, I would argue that it's that's not what you need, is convincing that this isn't so right. What you need is affirmation of the identity that you already hold, the identity that is actually attracting the violence of the mob. In other words, mob violence is about denying your citizenship, denying that you are a meaningful member of your family and a meaningful member of your nation. So if I'm going to hold on to my belief that I'm precisely those things, a decent person and a citizen, then I'm not going to leave the same kind of records as someone who's trying to convince whites of something.
0: Mm-hmm. This might be a good place to uh, ask you about um, your change in terminology. You say that you have shifted from talking about anti-lynching Plays to calling these lynching plays. Uh, can you say more about that?
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. That. You know, I really feel like I can see my growth as a thinker and scholar um, through this project, and it's having the confidence to shift um, to that terminology. That's one of one of the markers for me. Um, so. On the one hand, part of what I'm marking there by calling it lynching drama rather than anti-lynching drama, part of what I'm marking is that this isn't just protest literature. These plays do not exist simply to um, protest and convince whites that maybe this isn't such a good thing to be doing. So on the one hand, I'm marking that and saying that they're not just responding to the violence by writing these plays, they're actually telling us what's going on in the black community and forcing us to see that the success in black communities is actually what creates the reaction from whites who want to destroy that success. So because of that move, the plays actually show us that um, it's black people minding their own business, attaining a certain amount of success that actually inspires the mob to come in with its violence. So, on the one hand, it's about saying this isn't anti-lynching, this is um, not just protest, it is also recording community truth and affirming that identity. But the other part of the importance of that shift in language, to say that it's lynching drama, is also to say that you don't go to black authors simply to understand an anti-lynching movement. You can go to black authors if you really want to understand lynching because they're telling us something really profound about what even causes lynching, but you can't get that from other documents. So, for example, you're not going to get from other documents what you get from Alice Dunbar and Nelson's Mine Eyes Have Seen, which very clearly says, in, a, in essence, it is our success that beckons the mob. We are not attacked by the mob because we are a race of criminals. It is our success that beckons the mob. That's a powerful statement in terms of understanding lynching itself. That's not about understanding an anti-lynching movement. That's about understanding lynching itself as a phenomenon that has shaped U.S. culture. So that's the other reason why I call it lynching drama, because you can look to these plays to understand lynching itself and its role in U.S. culture at the last turn of the century. Because one of the things I hope the book does is I want people to see that when we take these documents seriously, they actually teach us something about U.S. culture more generally at this time. They teach us something about how important performance is to identity formation for white Americans and for people of color it's not just about what these things can illuminate about black people it's also what they're revealing to us about the importance of performance for white and the importance of you know the embodied practices that they participate in right so lynching as a theatrical Um, event, but also just the importance of gestures and tones of voice. The idea that if you, you know, glare at a black person in a certain way, that's a certain kind of performance that is solidifying your identity. Um, the expectation that that black person will get off of the sidewalk, the fact that you are walking straight and not giving way at all to that black person who's coming ahead because you know that they're supposed to, you know, get out of your way, that is a, that's embodied performance that is tied to identity. So I really want the book to be about us understanding the turn of the century more fully, that it's not just the nadir of race relations, the lowest point where black people couldn't do anything but survive, it's also a time where we can, if we pay attention, Um, recognize that this white um, assuredness is actually not so assured. (laughs) You know, it's not about um, being sure of your superiority. It's about how can I perform in ways that create and sustain superiority Mm -hmm. or the assumption of it.
0: I couldn't help but think, as I was reading your book about um, Ken Warren's book, the end of African-American uh-huh. literature. And I'd like to get your response to this. Um, it's it's a little bit tangential, but I think part of what I interpreted from what you were saying is that um, African-American literature, particularly at this time, at the turn of the 20th century, um, was not always, as you said, acting in protest, and that even um, texts like the lynching dramas even though they are addressing um you know a very um what's the word for it a, a very um uh illegal
2: confrontational. a
0: confrontational issue um it's not in the same way that uh Ken Warren sort of profiles African American literature as always responding to um as as a as a as a set, responding to uh, Jim Crow violence or Jim Crow laws, etc. In fact, um, I think that that your argument pushes his argument um, uh, a little bit and challenges uh, people who actually accept his thesis to reevaluate what the, the literature that we might think of as Jim Crow literature or protest literature, as problem literature, as seeing that as itself speaking to the larger American culture and not just problems that African Americans might face. What's your response to that?
2: Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah, I've actually written about this on my blog because, um, because yes, I I take a lot of issue with the premise of that book. Um, and it seems to me that if you're going to claim that African American literature is only about reacting to injustice, if you're going to claim that, then yes, the time period that I study and lynching itself would be presumably your best examples because what else could be more reactionary so the fact that these lynching plays are doing so much more than protesting is the best evidence that that couldn't possibly Mm -hmm. be true Mm -hmm. about any of the literature Mm -hmm. so what what i think this study what i think my book shows um is that very often it is the lens that we bring, and so that's why I'm so invested in this idea of you know um whose evidence, which account, because we've been handed this picture of lynching and accepted as the best evidence those lynching photographs. Everyone has done that we've all done that. it seems like the natural best evidence because. Well, look at this. They're they're actually telling off on themselves. Their brutality, they're actually telling off on themselves. And so we've accepted those photographs as if they're just some kind of neutral record, mm-hmm. and they're not. Mm-hmm. And so just in the same way that you can read those um, photographs, you can also read these plays if you're willing to read what they actually give you. Mm-hmm. and not insist that what they're doing is simply protesting. Alice Dunbar Nelson's mine my nice scene. I always use that as the example because it is the clearest assertion that the reason we are being lynched is not because we're criminals. It's because we were successful. And this lynching comes in to destroy the home. And meanwhile, the mob is out there claiming that blacks don't care about domesticity anyway. Um, Meanwhile, if that's the truth, then why did you have to destroy this home so forcefully? Mm -hmm. So, yes, the plays, when we look at them and read them, um, they tell us that they are not just protesting. (laughs) They tell us that they are recording um, community truths, that they are preserving um, their cultural practices, Mm -hmm. and that in the midst of those cultural practices, here comes the mob. Reacting to their success,
0: you've mentioned um, a couple times uh, uh, Dunbar Nelson's "Mine Eyes Have Seen," but you also uh, discuss other plays, um, Angelina Grimke's "Rachel," um, mm-hmm. and and plays uh, lynching dramas by black men as well. I want to ask two questions here. What is the difference that you note between uh, the differences from the women-authored lynching dramas and the male-authored lyn- lynching dramas, if any.
2: Yes, yes. Well, and since you mentioned Grimke, I'll, I'll set up two uh, contrasts then. Uh, so the first contrast would be Angelina Well Grimke's Rachel, um, written, we know, as early as 1914, first staged in 1916. So if you juxtapose that play with the rest of the plays, you get a dramatic... Contrast. Rachel um, is a three act play. It's a full length play. It was an evening of entertainment when it was first staged in Washington, D.C. It really hinges on the similarities between whites and blacks in terms of how it creates its characters. So the message is lynching is bad and we should stop it because even upstanding black citizens are vulnerable to it, not just criminals. So Rachel is. I say the inaugural text, and it is um, important for that reason. It's also a full-act play that draws an interracial audience. When you set that against the contrast of the one-act plays, that's the first big shift we get in lynching drama, because the move to the one-act means a different audience and a different focus. So Rachel by Angelina Grimke is, in fact, trying to convince whites that lynching might not be such a good idea, and then the one-act scene to try to address um, black audiences and thereby affirm their identities as decent people and upstanding citizens. So that's shift number one. Shift number two comes when black male authors entered the genre around 1925. So at that point, we're about a decade into a couple revisions um, of Rachel through these one-act plays, and then here come black men. The big difference for me is that over and over again, woman author plays put forward perfect black manhood. I mean, this mm-hmm. head of household mm-hmm. is just a perfect mm-hmm. example of anything that the United States says it will respect. He is hard working. Mm-hmm. He is in, in fact, we get actual specific figures, the black soldier and the black lawyer, and there there just couldn't be a more perfect specimen of what American manhood should be, and yet he's attacked when you get to male author plays, we get the pimp and the coward. And so the revision becomes, instead of suggesting that the only way you can destroy our domestic success is by killing this upstanding man, the black male playwright suggests, well, actually, lynching can destroy even without killing because it inspires some of us not to want to be that head of household who will protect our wife and child. So we might go toward, you know, tempting and being a coward, But what's interesting about it is that the men make it very clear that it's not the pimp and the coward who are targeted by the mob. (laughs) So the message is, okay, if you want to live, then maybe you should be a pimp or a coward. Now, if you want to be an upstanding man who is the patriarch of his home, then the mob is coming after you. But if you're a pimp and a coward, you'll probably get to live.
0: Hmm.
2: And that's a powerful message.
0: Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm.
2: You know, so I think, you know, what I try to do in that chapter, that's chapter six of the book, where Mm -hmm. I really talk about the male playwrights. And what I really try to do is show that for all of the uplift rhetoric that this time period is known for, you also get, even within lynching drama, a real debate. What is the quality of our citizenship? What is, you know, what are the things that we should assume are to be held up as the models of how we operate? And with those plays, you get a real debate about how much does it pay, um, to be an upstanding, uh, citizen when white men don't follow their own standards mm-hmm. or when if they see a black example of what they say they'll respect, they want to annihilate it. And so so, there's a real debate going on.
0: Mm-hmm. And so can you um, uh, go back and just tell us a little bit about the difference between a, a lynching play like Grimke's that's directed toward a, a dual audience or primarily to a, a, a white audience, as you say, um, she said, to um, help white women to see that lynching um, was wrong, and the lynching drama directed to 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 African Americans what internal to the plays do you think um uh is different
2: Okay yeah that's a good question um Rachel basically what we get in Rachel is she's a young carefree uh girl and she does not actually know why her father is no longer around. Her mom has basically kept that a secret from her and her brother. Um, And so it's like 10 years before they actually find out. And what we discover is that the mother realizes that in keeping it a secret, she made them ashamed. Because at one point, Rachel says, well, you know... I feel sorry for mothers whose children grow up to be bad. And her mom says, how would you know that? They don't usually go around flaunting the flaws, do they? And Rachel says, well, that's exactly how you know. They don't say anything at all. So this makes the mother realize that in being silent about what happened to her husband and her um, first child, um, because her young boy is also lynched along with the father those years before, um, in not talking about that, she has actually created some silence in which shame could grow. And so, um, eventually, Rachel basically decides that, you know, it's too dangerous for Black males and so I'm never going to have a child. There are all kinds of other things that happen too. There's this um young young um boy that she's helping to raise who is called the N-word and thrown rocks at and she can't comfort him. That's part of, you know, the, the sympathy. It it's a very sentimental play. It's it's over and over showing us these ways that Rachel, as sweet and gentle as she is, can't find any refuge. Um, from the violence and from the pain that is created by this violence. So that incident with the young boy that she's raising and then later an incident where um, a a visiting mother tells her about the trials and tribulations that her dark-skinned daughter has had at school. So all of these things kind of pile up and Rachel says to herself, well, you know, being a mother is all I've ever wanted to be, but if I can't protect children, then, then why have children, so she rejects the proposal of her loving suitor and um, really ends up going a little mad. Mm -hmm. So... The, the the implication here is look at this perfect example of innocence and the perfect kind of young woman who would be a wonderful mother and wants to fulfill her role in life as a wonderful mother, and look at what is keeping her from wanting to do that, and all of these upstanding male characters that are annihilated. So it's all about everything that you should admire, and despite them being this middle-class picture of perfection, they too are suffering under this violence. And so, yes, you're right. Grimke does say um, in 1920 she publishes a rationale for the play. So later, after the play has been out a while, she publishes the rationale because she is being criticized for basically, some people said, race suicide, encouraging um, people not to have children. Um, and she says that's not the case. I was targeting white audiences in order to see let them see what kind of pain they're causing to the most innocent among us. So that's the kind of work that Rachel is doing. Mm-hmm. Um in contrast to that, I would say what the one act end up doing is focusing on um I would say debates among African Americans themselves. So since I've talked about My Knife of Scene*, let me skip that and go to Aftermath, which is 1919, Mary Burrill. It's another play like My Knife of Scene* that is about black soldiers. And in this instance, you have a black soldier whose father has been lynched while he's away. Um, and when he comes back, he's all proud and he has gifts and everything, and he can't wait to see his dad. And the whole family is pretending that dad will be home any minute. His sister hasn't told him the, the, that dad is actually been lynched while he was gone and then a neighbor comes in and accidentally reveals it and so John this proud soldier basically marches out to get uh, to avenge his father's death and we know that nothing good can come of this mm-hmm. part of what I feel like that play is doing is it's, it's really inspiring debate and that's one of the things that I argue in the book is an embodied practice of black belonging if you respect me enough you'll debate me. And so part of what I'm suggesting these plays allow Black um, families and communities to do is to have serious debates about the quality of their citizenship and to have debates about what constitutes black identity in this American arena. And so I would say that inspiring debate is one of those embodied practices that helps to affirm each other that, yes, we are worth influencing each other's opinions. (laughs) We are worth airing our opinions to each other and have them seriously debated. Um, And so that, to me, is part of what the plays do. Besides. You know, it's not as if those one acts aren't also very often giving you traditionally upstanding characters. Mm-hmm. It's just that because they engage each other in a different way that's about the black community and not about what whites think of that community, it really does just kind of shift the the conversation that they inspire.
0: Mm-hmm. And while I was reading the book, I... I I kept feeling as if I was at church because I wanted to just say amen. <laughs> uh, and I think a few moments I Thanks. did say it actually out loud. And I'm going to refer to something that you just said uh, that I also noted in the in the uh, theorizing in the book. Uh, when you just said that, if you respect me enough, you will debate me, <clears throat> that's okay. huge because that isn't often... The approach that literary critics or even, uh, teachers of literature take to literary works. In other words, we don't really, uh, look at plays or poetry or, or, um, fiction as, as artifacts in which that generate debate. Uh, I I mean, they may generate scholarly debate in terms of the structure of the text or sort of formal features, etc. But we're talking about cultural debates, debates that have to do with um, people's actual lived experience and lives. Can you say something about that, that approach?
2: Absolutely. Well, you know, I I guess in some ways... Part of what inspired that was you know the the approach the performance theory approach that I used from Diana Taylor, the archive and the repertoire um which is to suggest right that on the one hand you have the archive those written texts um that tells you something about what's going on in a time period. On the other hand, you have a repertoire of embodied practices. And one of the things that that theory did for me is it made me recognize the degree to which written text or the archive also point to a repertoire of embodied experience, embodied practice. So when you have these kinds of debates set up in the plays, then that lets you know that there is debate happening in lived experience. And that for me was huge in terms of understanding what is the actual function of these texts. If they are going to take the time to record differences of opinion, then part of what they're doing is they're gesturing toward the fact that that's very much a part of their lived experience in the United States. Um, so, yes, for me that was a big, a big revelation to actually think more dynamically about what an archive shows us. It doesn't just, you know, show us something static. It actually gestures toward embodied practices that are happening. It lets us know that, wait a second, I need to think about this text being used in that barbershop. You know, there might be a line or two red and then we launch into debate about it or we start sharing stories ourselves of lynchings we knew about. All of that is part of a community conversation that is dynamic. It's about words, but it's about so much more than those words. And so to have something as simple as a debate recorded in a play, um, to think about it from a performance standpoint, allowed me to think more dynamically and say, wait a second, what is this actually pointing to the existence of in this cultural moment? It's pointing to actual debate that people are having. So yeah, I, I I yeah.
0: Can you uh, I feel
2: like it's just a, a more faithful reading, you know, it's a mm-hmm. more faithful reading of the text and the culture when we allow ourselves to see what they're not only writing but also what they're gesturing towards.
0: I wholeheartedly agree. And I hope that our colleagues uh, <laughs> pick up on this strand as well. Um, now, let me ask you this question. Can you say something about the, your, your dates? I mean, you do talk about this uh, uh, in the introduction a little bit. Um, 1892 to 1930. Now, there's a lot of stuff that's happening in this in this time period in terms of uh, the way in which we um, speak about literary movements and periods, um, particularly the, the Harlem Renaissance is in, enclosed in here, but also in terms of um, politics and laws, the institutionalization of Jim Crow. You mentioned at the outset our um, common reference to this period as the Nadir. Can you say something about this time period that you have this forty year span that you've chosen to study
2: sure um I think one of the biggest things that I'm trying to capture with eighteen ninety to nineteen thirty is the degree to which photography is starting to feed into the cultural work that lynching is doing. By the 1890s, you're seeing more and more photographs come into the picture, come into what mobs are doing. And um, the more that that technology becomes a part of the ritualized violence of the mob, it starts to shift, I think, the cultural work that mobs are able to do. It allows for the violence to reverberate, um, all over the country. It allows for a certain kind of standardization of the violence. Um, you not only are getting the detailed descriptions in the newspaper about what constitutes a good lynching, but now you also have, you know, visuals to go along with it. And so, for me, beginning in 1890, Um, is partly a way of marking the emergence and um, increasing use of photography for the kind of work that the mob is doing. The other thing about the 1890s, of course, is that this is also when um, it's very clear that black women are on the front lines of trying to stop lynching. So Ida B. Wells um, her campaign is very much underway um, by the 1890s. And so it's a way of suggesting it isn't simply that the mob is doing this powerful work. It's also that all along the way, black people are doing things to affirm their own identities. It's not simply that they're going about rejecting or protesting lynching. Um, they're trying to affirm their own identities seeing themselves as citizens. We are past, uh, we're, you know, at this point, it is emancipation has happened, Reconstruction has come and gone, Um, now we're in post-Reconstruction, and all the efforts of white supremacy are to put you back in your place. Um, African Americans are simply just trying to march into modernity, like everyone else. So, as Ida B. Wells is doing that kind of work, what she's really doing is affirming her own identity and affirming the identity of other African Americans who are trying to seize their citizenship. Mm-hmm. So, I, see 1890s, in terms of the turbulence of that time, as about both of these groups moving forward to claim their identities. Um, African Americans as citizens and then white Americans trying to hold on to some idea of supremacy. Well, you,
0: um, you you talk in the book about the revelations that your um, students have um, to um, reading the plays, and when you talk about... Um, uh, other um lynching narratives uh like uh, the the song strange fruit or um even the the um uh collection photograph collection without sanctuary what what aha moments do other audiences have when you discuss your book
2: hmm. well hmm
0: <laughs> or, or do they do they have any <laughs>
2: I think I think the thing that catches people most off guard is the fact that I'm saying it's not about protest. Over and over again, I think that that is what people are truly astonished by. Um, fortunately, uh, they usually are also very convinced <laughs> by the argument, but I would say that that is what people find most Surprising, um, and so I'm really proud of that shift that I'm able to create, whereby we actually take the perspective of those who are targeted, rather than um, taking at their word the the perpetrators. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I would say that that's the thing that people are most um, surprised by, and of course I never, um, you know, I talk a little bit in the book about. The drawbacks of the photo well, I guess I talk a lot about the drawbacks <laughs> of the photographs and what they are not able to tell us, but i I have to say that, yes, I do still use the photograph because um you know we we're a nation that really likes um you know convenient amnesia, so it is important to grapple with um this violence and. You know to not kind of take this oh I'm just too sensitive to look at it my my view is they went through this and we're not going to ignore that just for our own comfort sake so it's not that I deny the power of the photographs, but my argument always is we have to have something in conversation with them, because they don't tell us the perspectives of those who were targeted, and those who were targeted have a lot to teach us about this time period. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah, I would say that, you know, I don't want to give the impression that I never use those photographs. I still use them sometimes in my teaching, as much as I prefer not to in some ways. Um, but I think you just need both sides of of the story, at least both sides, right?
0: <laughs> and uh, I just want to make sure that you said everything you wanted to say ab- about the dates, and I didn't cut you off too quickly in talking about... Um...
2: Yeah, okay, so thank you, actually. Um, because the other thing that I've tried to do with thinking about this time period, I've been influenced by um, Barbara McCaskill and Caroline Gabbard's um, work um, they edited a collection called Postbellum Pre-Harlem, and honestly, that was one of the ways that I was able to um, come to these plays and not just assume protest, um, because when you think about it not just as the Harlem Renaissance and not just as they made dear, but as something a little bit more complicated and nuanced, that was part of the way that I was able to look at this and say, well, wait, what? there's something else going on here besides just trying to survive. Um, there's some creation of beauty here and, in fact, commenting on the beauty of what they created and commenting on how the beauty of what they created is the reason the mob came. So it was that post Harlem, pre-Harlem um, rubric that helped me to think a little bit more dynamically about what's going on in this time period because I think we're comfortable with okay, we we believe in this time period that things are just so bad that all blacks can do is survive. But even if we want to believe that, we can't completely believe that because the organizations like um, the NAACP, their records are so well kept that the um, political activism of African Americans can't be denied. So it's not just survival that's going on. There's also some real, um, you know, activism. But we've been less likely to acknowledge that there's not just political activism, there's also um, artistic creations going on, right? Uh, and I think it's taken scholars a little longer to get to the point where we're really paying attention to this time period as one that's also, um, you know, one of creative... Output. It's not just that you have this flowering that came from nowhere with the Harlem Renaissance. There's actually plenty that's going on prior to that
0: that makes that
2: flowering possible. Yeah. And I guess the last thing I would say... Oh, go
0: ahead. No, no, no go ahead.
2: Um, so then I guess the last thing I would say is that um, the other thing that I found interesting in working with this material is that sometimes you can find declarations still, um and I believe this is still even in the second edition of the Norton Anthology of African American Literature, you can find declarations of how black drama just really didn't get on the same level as black poetry and fiction um, until after the Harlem Renaissance. There are still claims like that. (laughs) That, you know, I mean, when it comes to theater... We're still lagging behind. Um, and that's one of the other things that, that I think is so powerful about looking at this time period and looking at drama specifically, because what it points, <laughs> what it points to is the degree to which our definition of important drama is that which makes it to Broadway. But if you're mm-hmm. in this post-Bellum pre-Harlem moment and, uh, You know, why would Broadway be your best marker Mm -hmm. for what is going on? I mean, Williams and Walker, Cole and Johnson are on Broadway, um, and they're at the height of their success when during a riot in New York City, people yell out their names and say, Cole and Johnson, Williams and Walker, get them, let's kill them during this riot. Mm -hmm. So they're at the height of their success on Broadway at that time. Um, and so, but we're still going to use Broadway as our marker of whether there was important black drama that was non-musical created. Mm-hmm. Uh, not so much. If you pay <laughs> attention to you know, I'm not so convinced by that standard. Um, so I would say that that is the other um, importance of this 1890 to 1930 framework in terms of challenging what we think about this time period around black drama as well.
0: You know what, Carita, amen. <laughs> I've been grappling with that question for about 20 years. I did my um, master's thesis on dramatic literature of the Harlem Renaissance. And I yeah. started with the, this very question of why prose and poetry of the Harlem Renaissance seem to be more prominent than um, uh, drama. And the Obviously, I didn't answer it um <laughs> and you just did <laughs> so thank you <laughs> wow, um,
2: thank you. I didn't realize that that, that was your master's
0: it was, yeah it was <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know even even drama critics like uh, theophilus lewis um mm-hmm. you know and some of his uh essays made make make this same claim about um uh Uh, the the drama having yet come of age, black drama and so forth and what um, it needs to do in order, in order to do that. But I, but I'm, uh, happy to hear you offer another perspective. And I want to give you some time to talk about your short but very substantive conclusion to the book, um, Documenting Black Performance, Key Considerations. And I was struck by your paired epigraphs, one from Pauline Hopkins, um, from her perspectives for Contending Forces, that, which you paired with Theophilus Lewis's um uh comment from an article in the in the messenger about a sort of um uh the ways in which which uh literature can um alight uh debates cultural debates and 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 help us to reckon with you know society and our humanity can you say something about that
2: um Sure. Um, the 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 conclusion is actually exciting in lots of ways for me. Uh, one reason why is because it was the place that I got to uh, use my biggest archival find, <laughs> um, you know, which is that 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 exchange between Du Bois and Willis Richardson about uh, people getting their royalties. <laughs> um, so I won't go into the details of that though. I hope people will read the book for that. But um yeah, what I'm interested in 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 the conclusion is really driving home this idea about how do we define um, define theatrical success and the many reasons why Black people living at the turn of the century would have good reason to define theatrical success in ways that are not about the kinds of records that theater historians would like to find in the wake of um, theater practitioners, right? We want to find a playbill. We want to find, you know, attendance records, receipts, if, if possible. That's the kind of thing we want to find in order to assert that it was an important performance that had some impact on a community. But there are lots of reasons why we wouldn't find that in the wake of these um, these theater practitioners. And so the conclusion is really about trying to think more dynamically about that. But, you know, the other thing that what you're saying makes me think about is um, Elaine Lopp and Montgomery Gregory are actually, I would say, the beginning of us not being able to see black drama um, unless it reaches Broadway because they were interested in making sure that the Howard University Drama Department had national credentials, that it was recognized by Yale um, Drama and other places. And so they were really invested in doing the networking necessary necessary to make that happen and getting the respect of people at Yale as well as um, at uh, University of North Carolina. I'm blanking on his name right now. Um, but the theater um, professor down there who was so important for the folk theater movement. Um, So they were really invested in that. And as a result, when they edit their anthology in 1930 of black drama, they talk about how nothing important had been done yet except for by, you know, people like Eugene O'Neill and Ridgely Torrance. Ridgely Torrance, because he used black actors in 1917 in his three plays for Negro theater. So they really hold them up as the model because those are people who had Broadway access. Um, So I would say that this prioritizing Broadway as our standard for understanding whether black theater and black drama is important really begins with them. But we have to remember that there's a context for what they're doing. They're trying to get, you know, recognition from mainstream uh, theater people. And that's the reason that they're doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, same thing with Du Bois, right? I make that argument earlier about Du Bois and his desperation of theater about us, by us, for us, and near us. Well, what we have to recognize is that actually there is theater that is all of those things before what he's talking about, but he has specific reasons for placing emphasis on black author material rather than what's happening on um, stages in black communities at that time. So all of those declarations are specific to the historical context. And what i tried to do is just have us be attentive to the historical context in each situation. So the conclusion, as you said, is about thinking about, okay, are we being attentive to the historical um, context if we are disappointed at not being able to point and say, well, absolutely, this was seen by X amount of people and we know that it was staged with costumes here and without costumes there. You know, we're not going to find that in relationship to these plays, but that doesn't mean that they weren't doing important work for the community.
0: Mm-hmm. And perhaps I I don't want to overinterpret um uh, overinterpret the text, but I was wondering how Hopkins quote uh embellishes or emphasizes what you um conclude here. Um I I probably was overreaching um in my own analysis, but maybe you you can say a word about that.
2: Um, so her focus on how fiction is important for preserving those manners and customs?
0: Yes. Religious, political, and social. Yeah. I, I, I thought that there was a, um, a real connection with some of the, uh, efforts that Du Bois was after in, um, publishing drama plays in the Crisis magazine and also in, um, in wanting to see them, uh, uh, widely staged, um, uh, perhaps and not as professional productions as some, some playwrights would like. I, I saw a sort of, um, emphasis in, um, uh, uh, having a widespread, um, reception to, um, the plays and what they were about.
2: Absolutely. I mean, no, I definitely think that they're in conversation and or on the same page because what Du Bois admits is that he publishes these one-act plays in crisis because he expects them to be staged by amateurs. And so for her to be focused about preserving the manners, customs, and so on of the group is, again, about how can we sustain each other um, rather than focusing on trying to convince whites of something. Because what she's talking about there is she's talking about in times of crisis. So the, the way I read it is, okay, we're in this time of crisis, um, lynching and concubinage, as she says, and contending forces. This is the time of crisis, and yet we still need to take time to write fiction, because no one else will do the kind of work for us that fiction can do, which is, again, being that preserver of manners and customs, religious, political, and social. So, yeah, I I feel like what she's doing is in conversation with what Du Bois is doing, and the plays um, are part of what he's doing with Crisis, but we've gone back and erased how important drama was to his vision. But his... His publishing those plays in crisis is about amateur performance. It's not about getting on Broadway. He even says, well, if we want to see a Negro that we know or that we would want to know, we can't rely on the traditional theatrical producer It mm-hmm. has our churches and lodges and halls. So he um, wants to see drama used, as you say, in a widespread way, but in a widespread community way.
0: Yes, yes. Can you tell us what you're working on now?
2: Uh, Well, the next project will be on what I call home building anxiety, um, which I define as the palpable tension that emerges when African Americans, especially women, continue to invest in home building, even when they see the signs that it won't yield for them the respectability or safety that it should. Um, So that definitely is coming out of my work on lynching, right? Because I'm talking over and over again in in this book about how you have that perfect nuclear family that the United States says proves that you're ready for full citizenship, but it is having that domestic success that actually makes you more vulnerable to the mob. So... You invest in home building, but it may not yield that safety and respectability that it should. So, I'm looking um, to kind of trace this phenomenon. Can I see home building anxiety at work in texts um, in a range of texts by Black women, um, probably mostly at the last turn of the century? So, the same time period as this book.
0: Thank you so much, Karitha, for joining us uh, on new books in African American studies.
2: Thank you.
1: I want to personally thank my friend and colleague, Coretha Mitchell, for joining me on new books in African-American studies. Our lively interchange was at turns provocative and entertaining. I was especially enthralled by her concluding reading that was full of meaning. If you haven't done so, order your copy today of Coretha Mitchell's Living with Lynching, Published by the University of Illinois Press.